Well, good morning and happy new year. It's good to be with you all today. If you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Luke. And uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, it'll be on page 859. One of the things that may not be, you may not know about is that this past December, this church celebrated 25 years of its being, of its existence. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Um, but uh, anniversaries like this, and I'm sure we'll be talking more about this uh, this year, but are great times to reflect on God's faithfulness and to see what he has done, but also to reflect on what he might be doing and will do for 25 more years or 50 or 100, uh, as long as his grace and mercy allows these doors to be open. And I think that's uh, an interesting and, and an exciting thing for us as a church to contemplate and consider, especially as we start a new year, but also as we start a new series in the book of Luke here, um, found in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so as we get into that this, uh, this morning, uh, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word as we, um, and as I'll introduce this series here in, in a minute um, and give more in, input into what it is we'll be talking about. Uh, our text is, in, is found in chapter 4, going verses 1 to 13. So uh, let us give our attention to his word. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been, get, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall not worship, or you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you, are the te- if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. It's the reading of God's word. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, new years, in some ways new beginnings. And for many of us, as we um, look at your word, uh, there are new things to be, uh, to, to new, th- new things to learn and to see um, through your word. And I pray that you would do that for us this morning, that you would give us eyes and ears to see and hear uh, new things that we haven't or old things to remember those things, uh, the way that Jesus gives his life for us as we see here in this text. We ask that you make that clear to us for your glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we begin this new series, one of the questions that we're going to be asking throughout this series is what is it that would compel you or anybody to follow Jesus? What is it that would compel you to give up your life 
Um, to give up your comforts even, to give up your money, to give up the things that you enjoy and to follow him. That's the question we're after as we look into Luke's gospel. It is always a good thing for Christians alike to ask themselves, what Jesus am I following? Right? Am I following a cultural Jesus? Am I following political Jesus? Am I following American Jesus? What Jesus am I following? At the same time, for those who might not believe, right, for those who might find themselves here uh, questioning or even asking questions about who this Jesus is, it's equally good to listen to the gospel, Luke in this case, and to ask a simple question, which I would invite you to ask. And that is, if this were true, could I see myself following this person? Could I follow Jesus? And so I personally, along with this church session, invite you to do that for this series. A seminary professor of mine always said, Jesus is in the business of, quote, disturbing the comfortable and comforting the disturbed. In other words, Jesus rarely fits into any type of box that we long to put him in, culturally, politically, socially, you name it. And that means one of two things. Either Jesus is irrelevant and unuseful to us in this day and age, or maybe we're just not so sure as to who he is to begin with. And so I invite you to listen. What might uh, we have to learn from Luke this winter, spring as we see Jesus and encounter him ourselves. The name of this series is Encounters with Jesus. As Jesus goes into all these different situations and, and encounters different individuals. This morning, as Jesus encounters Satan, how might we find ourselves? What might we learn as we encounter him as well? A little background in the book of Luke. I'll probably only mention this once, just for the sake of time and for your attention span, but Luke authors two books of the Bible, and, and many uh, think of them as just one, but the first book, or part one, is this gospel we'll be going through, the gospel of Luke. Part two is known as the book of Acts, both of those authored by Luke. Luke's gospel here is tended to be, or at least agreed upon, that it is more given to, is given more to a Gentile audience, unlike maybe Matthew's gospel. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, which is important to us. But we note that in the opening verses of chapter 1 in Luke, we find that he is writing to a man named Theophilus. Now, we don't know much about this person other than that his name means friend of God. But Theophilus uh, is the person that Luke is writing. And we note there in verse 4 of chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, that Luke is writing so that he may have certainty concerning the things he has been taught. He being Theophilus. Certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. What does certainty look like for you? What should certainty look like as you consider following Jesus? These might be questions that you have. Well, for certain, as we read Luke's introduction as an invitation to consider what follows, we read it also to know of its reliability, which is one of the things Luke sets out to do, sets out to do for us. And for, for the purpose to make a decision. Namely, will I find the claims of Jesus believable? And will I choose to follow him? And if I choose to follow him, what in the world does that even look like? And that's what we're after this, this series. We start in the fourth chapter as Jesus encounters Satan. 
And I really have uh, two points. It's really just one point, actually. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. Uh, but we will be primarily in this first point this morning, and there's some subpoints I'll give you, looking at that second point on your handout as more of a conclusion. So um, as you begin to look at your watch, and I haven't finished this first point, don't get worried. Um, but those first two things, as you see, why is Jesus in the desert wilderness, and what is Jesus doing in the desert wilderness? So I'm just setting a timer for your benefit. Let's look at that first one. Why is Jesus in the desert wilderness? The reason that Jesus, and this is really the point of the whole passage for me, for you this morning. The reason that Jesus is going into the desert wilderness is to give his life for you. Right? It is to give his life for you. In other words, Jesus is going here, led by the Spirit, so that what is, what is and will be true for him will also be true for you. There it is. And there are two subpoints that will occupy our time with this first point. As I mentioned, the first is suffering, if you want to put that on your outline. Jesus goes to this desert wilderness and he encounters Satan to suffer. And the second, though, is mission. Okay? That is to be for us what we cannot be for ourselves. And both of these subpoints, if you will, show us more clearly why Jesus is here in the first place. And that is to make what is true for him true for you. So let's look at that first one. Jesus goes to the wilderness to suffer as proof that he has come to give his life for you. Many would agree that the cross of Jesus is the ultimate stage, right, where we see Jesus giving his life up for those that he loves. Though we would argue this. But I, I want to suggest to you that all of Jesus' life and all of his ministry is him taking, that is him taking on flesh, what we just celebrated this past Christmas, and becoming a man, is him giving up his life, giving up his plans, giving up his comfort, giving up his wealth and his glory to enter into this world, to enter into your world for you. To see this, though, in chapter 4, we have to remember what has just happened before Jesus goes into this desert wilderness to encounter Satan and, and to suffer and to be tempted. And what has just happened is Jesus has just been baptized. He has received the blessing and the assurance and the affirmation of the Father's love for him. Why is this important? Why would this matter? See, all four Gospels interesting enough, include the baptism of Jesus. And the three synoptic, synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all place Jesus' baptism right next to our passage this morning. Why? It's because they aim to convince you that Jesus has come not to be served as though he should be, as the Son of God, but to serve Think about this with me for a second. How many of you who would call yourselves Christians this morning, right? How many of you would find yourself thinking on a daily basis if, as a Christian, if only I could stop doing X, right? If only I could sort of, uh, you know, get rid of these certain sins. If I could begin to um, be more active in my church, right? Maybe I could start uh, coming to Sunday school or I could uh, have a better attendance at worship or maybe even lead a small group, Right? Um, or whatever boxes it is that you would check, if I could just fix a couple of these things, how many of us think then that that would make God more pleased with us? 
Or at least we would feel more pleased with ourselves. Well, let's say that all of this happens. Okay, stay with me here for a second. Let's say that you check all of these boxes, that there really isn't anything in your mind that's questioning whether or not God is pleased with you. And as you're driving to work or wherever you're going, right, your record's so outstanding, you actually do begin to receive an audible affirmation. And if this happens, don't come and tell me. But an audible affirmation that God is, in fact, pleased with you. Where would you go next? Where does that send you? Is that a one-way ticket to you being an elder or deacon in a church somewhere? Perhaps. For certain, that would demand your own Sunday school class. But let's think bigger here for a second, right? What kind of lifestyle would you feel entitled to as this person who has lived a life so well that it warranted God's verbal approval, much like the one Jesus has received in the previous chapter? Where does that send you next? What should your life look like? And see, I think this is important for us to consider because we have a disease in our church, the church at large, that says today, once God is pleased with you, whether because of your faith or your good behavior, then he will affirm his favor with more blessings, more success, more health, more wealth, right? In other words, for many of us, we think that God's favor and blessing upon our lives is manifested and affirmed in the absence of suffering. In the absence of conflict. In the absence of trial. And certainly in the absence of failure. Therefore, God being pleased with my life should send me into a world of favor, success, and all things bright and beautiful. But is that what happens to Jesus who, unlike any of us in this room this morning, who is the Son of God and has received right, the affirmation and approval from God that he is well pleased, is this what happens to Jesus? No. Where does that approval send him? Into the desert wilderness. Immediately to be tempted into suffering. Luke has gone to great lengths in chapter 3 to show us that Jesus is the Son of God through baptism and genealogy. Yet, does this Son of God request or get the royal treatment? Right? Is he quickly escorted away? Which it, he could and should be. If he is the son of God, is he escorted away to his palace where his servants and concubines wait to serve his every need? No, what this Jesus does is he goes to the wilderness to suffer, to give his life for you. It's interesting, the role of numbers in scripture, the number 40 is a significant number that comes up fairly often. And it is, uh, it is to be an indicator of suffering. That when you read that number, this is what comes to mind, at least what tends to come to mind for those who would find themselves in this day and age, in this culture. We think of, uh, you know, the suffering that Elijah experienced uh, in the wilderness for 40 days in 1 Kings. Perhaps the 40 days and 40 nights that God flooded the earth with Noah. But maybe more significantly what comes to mind is the 40 years of the suffering in the wilderness of Israel in the Old Testament. 
A people sent to literally travel in circles to be tested by God for obedience to him after they had been rescued from Egypt. And then number 40 often represents suffering. And then all of a sudden, right here on the pages of Luke, Jesus begins his ministry and the number 40 appears again. And it is so intentional. Jesus has come not to serve or not to be served, but to serve. If you are a Christian, at the very least, this has to impact and to shape your view of what it means to follow Jesus. And also your view of suffering, does it not? That the one who was the most pleasing, you've got to see this. The one who was filled with the Spirit was actually then led by the Spirit to go into temptation and to suffer. But perhaps more to the point, as we see Jesus being led into the desert wilderness, filled with the Spirit about to encounter Satan and temptation. We have to ask, is Jesus doing this for himself? No, he can't be. He's already received everything that you and I are working so desperately hard to get. God's favor and his approval. So who is he doing this for? He's doing this for you. This is why he goes. This is why Jesus is in the desert, to give his life away for you so that what is true for him will be true for you, namely God's approval of you in every way. More on that in a minute. But this gets to a second reason as to why Jesus is in the wilderness, and that is mission. That Jesus has come to give you and to give me a new beginning uh, by fighting a battle that you and I have failed to fight and that we cannot win. In the scene that we just read here, Jesus is identifying as a new Israel. Let's talk a little theology here for a second. By the imagery we just described there, the number 40, right? He is identifying as what theologians call the new Israel, right? Being for Israel, what Israel couldn't be back in the wilderness. But he is also doing something else that's equally important. He is identifying as a new man, Adam. And we see this as well with the temptations that come in the story. If you are familiar at all with the creation account in Genesis, you know that things go pretty well for about two chapters. And then all of a sudden in chapter 3, everything gets thrown out the window here. Why? Because our first parents, Adam and Eve, right, were tempted and they failed to remain obedient to God. A little bit of an overview here. They failed to believe God, to trust him, to believe that he is truly good, right? And in so doing, when tempted by the serpent, failed to believe that God is good and to obey his word. They wanted to be God themselves. And as a result, they lost their relationship with God through sin. It's a summary. Well, here we are again in Luke chapter 4 with Jesus being tempted by Satan. And what is Jesus doing? He's identifying as a new Israel and as a new Adam, except this time he will win. And he's doing this for you. And this is how Jesus comes to give you a new beginning by fighting a battle you failed to fight and that you cannot win. Michael Wilcox puts it best this way when he says of this passage that he, Jesus, is in fact going right back to the beginning, back to square one. He is the new Adam, 
In Eden, the head of the human race was confronted by the tempter, disobeyed God's word, and set the whole of mankind off on the wrong track. Now comes the second Adam. And alone in the wilderness, he, is in, he in, turn, in his turn confronts the tempter. The difference is that he will win. He will be totally, the totally obedient man, man as he was meant to be, man who is altogether righteous, man who never loses his relationship with God through sin. Jesus has come to give you a new beginning to do for you and to do for me what we cannot do for ourselves. This is his mission. This is why Jesus is in the desert, to give his life away for you in suffering and in mission to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But let me break for us for just a second here and ask the question, uh, what bothers you the most about this? Certainly this produces all kinds of questions, questions we're not going to get to this morning, but maybe later on in the, in the series. But what bothers you the most about what, what you are seeing in this text? What is it that is most troubling for you? Because see, for me, it's in the statement, Jesus has come to do for me what I cannot do for myself. That he is fighting a battle, if you will, that I have lost and cannot win. What does that mean? Why would you say that? Why is that the mission of Jesus? What I mean by that, and what I believe the text is saying, is it means the battle over sin, Satan, and evil. Three of the most taboo topics of our day. And it is important for us to pause here and talk about this, I think, before moving forward, the least with this series. But certainly as we come to our first encounter, Jesus encountering Satan. So let me define these for us. What do you mean by sin, Satan, and evil? By sin... I mean what the Bible says is wrong with you and with me and what you cannot fix by yourself. How our hearts are naturally bent away from God and toward, himself, toward ourselves, that type of sin. And this isn't just a, I have a couple of bad things to work on, but overall I'm a pretty good guy type of sin problem. This is the original sin that we hear about that we don't like to talk about. The original sin that David, King David, talks about in Psalm 51 when he says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, type of original sin. Taboo, right? But we're just getting started. Ryan, are you actually serious about the idea of Satan? And if you're not asking this question, I know you work and live with people who are. But are you trying to tell me that this figurehead, this Satan, this you know, prince of darkness is a real live entity, person? Does he exist? Yes. I am. Absolutely. And see, it's so easy for us to look at this text and think that it is so primitive and not take it seriously. Which is why I love what Tim Keller writes about this, saying, If you are trying to explain the world without the existence of the devil... You are being spiritually and intellectually naive. Mind you, he says that in New York City. Why does he say that? It's because of what the Bible thinks about evil and what our culture will not say about evil. And this gets to the heart of the matter. See, we, our culture, if you will, will not admit that evil is real. That it exists. 
And that is in large part because we have pulled from two major rivals to the biblical view of evil, dualism and pantheism. Stay with me for just a second. Right, dualism and pantheism. Suffice it to say that dualism is the belief that says that there are two warring good and evil entities going on at the same time. Sometimes the evil is winning, sometimes good is winning. But large, you know, all in part, this is how the world works. This is the secular view of dualism, if you will. They are, they are both competing, but one never truly winning. And the best that you can do in life is to create sort of an island or a peace and order, if you will, to sort of hedge against the evil. But there is no hope of lasting peace. There is no hope of order, only flux and disorder. That is dualism. And the worst part about this is that in, with dualism, Satan is just as powerful as God. Christians, have our, we have our own view, view of dualism, but it's a little more subtle. It says evil is something that exists, what? Out there, not in here. So we hedge against what is really bad and evil and stay away from it. But this is also just as dangerous and wrong. Pantheism, though, on the other hand, right, says that all is one, that everything is connected and a part of God, and God is in everything. And this sounds so wonderful until you sit with somebody who has cancer. Because from a pantheistic viewpoint, you can't call cancer evil or part of the fallen world. Why? Because since God is in everything, God is also in that cancer. And from another perspective, that's not that bad. C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, Mere Christianity, which I certainly commend. When he says that the pantheist can look at a person dying of cancer or anything really and say, if you could only see it from the divine point of view you would realize that this also is God. The person who says that has never sat at the bedside of someone dying of cancer. Therefore, in pantheism, evil doesn't even really exist. Even evil is merely an illusion. And because of this, we live in a culture that at best has a hard time admitting that evil is real, that it exists. And we blend these two forms of evil together to form our worldview. Columbia professor Andrew Delbanco writes a book called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And in this book, and this is fascinating, he nails it. He quotes from Thomas Harris's novel, The Silence of the Lamb. Right, which was made into a movie starring Anthony Hopkins, who plays Hannibal Lecter, right, and Jodie Foster, who plays Officer Starling or Clarice, right. If you've seen the movie, in one of their one of their dialogues between Hannibal Lecter, this horrible, horrible person who eats people, if you haven't seen the movie, don't go watch it. He is, you know, he's got this mask on. He's in this solitary confinement. He's in this dungeon of a cell. And on the other side of this probably four-inch thick piece of glass, he's talking to Officer Starling. She's trying to figure him out. And she looks at him and she says, What happened to you that you could do this? Who did something to you that you could be so bad? And Hannibal looks at her and says, Nothing happened to me. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behavioralism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? 
Can you stand to say I'm evil? And right there he has all of us, <laughs> right? That's taboo today. See, we don't even have the resources to begin to see or understand what is happening in chapter 4 of Luke if sin and Satan and evil are just illusions. At best, but don't even exist at worst. Del Banco goes on to say in his book that if you get rid of sin and you get rid of Satan and evil, then every bad deed has solely psychological and sociological roots. And that trivializes the suffering of the victims and the magnitude of what's happened. Hannibal Lecter has asked Starling a question, he says, that he knows her worldview doesn't have the resources to answer that under the worldview where sin and Satan and evil do not exist, one must tell the families of the victims whom Lecter beheads and eats that his mommy didn't love him. In other words, and this is the point why I belabor here, you cannot hold him or anyone responsible. What is more evil than that? And this is why Keller suggests, and I agree, that if you are trying to explain this world without the existence of Satan, you are being spiritually and intellectually naive. And he's right. Look, the very best movies, and we know this intuitively, the best movies and stories are the ones bold enough to draw that line. Right? Bold enough to give us a villain and a hero. Right? Are they not? Like the good side and the bad side. Like give me a Skeletor any day so that I can hope for a He-Man. Pretty sure that's never been... Announced from the pulpit. (laughs) But take Batman and the Joker. Why, for those who love those movies, is The Dark Knight one of the best Batman movies ever? It's because the Joker made you believe in evil again. Right? And not explain it away in the name of psychology and home life and lack of economic opportunity. If we can suspend our modern worldviews for a minute and enter a story where evil does exist, then maybe we can begin to see why Jesus is in the desert wilderness. But more importantly, why we need him to be in the desert wilderness in this very text so bad. Being for us what we cannot be for ourselves. Maybe we can begin to hope then that if evil is real, then maybe God is too for some of us. And if God and Satan are not equally powerful, maybe Satan can be defeated. Maybe everlasting peace can be a reality. Well, behold, friends, your hero enters the desert wilderness to be tempted. To give you a new beginning. By doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. This is his mission. Listen, friends, Christianity is only therapeutic at best. It is certainly a waste of our time at worst. If sin and Satan and evil are illusions. Are you certain that they are? But if they are not an illusion, if they are real, then Luke's gospel demands our attention, does it not? However you land on these questions this morning, let Jesus, who puts aside his royalty and takes up suffering, who comes to give you a new beginning, who comes to the desert to give you his life for your benefit and flourishing, 
Let that begin to shape how and why you choose to follow him. So why is Jesus in the desert? To give us his life. To give up his life for us. To make what is true for him to be true for you. How does this all happen? And this gets to that second question, that second point. What is Jesus doing in the wilderness? And I'm going to be very short here for time's sake. But this is the gospel, friends. And this is where I'll leave it. Jesus takes what is true for you and what is true for me. And all of our Hannibal Lecter-esque ways, all of our sin and all of our evil, and he makes it true for himself. He becomes that by identifying and substituting himself. And that begins here as he answers Satan back after three temptations that mankind does not live by bread alone. Mankind will worship God. Mankind will not put God to test. I've read this story a hundred times, and I've never understood where, where Satan comes in and he attacks Jesus at his deity. Do you notice that? His first words are what? If you are the son of God, right? And what is he doing? He's doing the same thing he did to Adam. Let me get you to doubt your baptism, Let me get you to doubt the declaration that God has just poured all over you. That he is not good. Right? This is what he is doing to Jesus here. If you are the son of God. But did you notice how Jesus responds? He doesn't respond defending his deity. He responds defending you. Mankind. Adam. The Hebrew word for all humanity, he's identifying as you. He's substituting himself for you in this moment. In other words, he is not giving Satan the time of day here. He's not taking the bait. He's not entertaining the doubt of God's goodness to him. In the previous chapter, he is fixed on his calling and his mission to be for us what we cannot be for ourselves. This is why he is answering in this way, seeing himself as you. So that one day when all of this comes to fruition on a cross, he can take that penalty. He can take that hit and exchange it for the perfect record that you and I will receive, will receive, right? What he is doing for us, we cannot do for ourselves. Why? So that you could have the true pleasure and the true dignity and the true assurance of knowing what it is the Father thinks of you when he looks at you today. This is why he does this. So that you can know, driving to the grocery store, or after that you know, time you raised your voice, one time when you raised your voice to your kids, am I a good parent? God is pleased with you. This is why he does this. But for this to happen, Jesus must become what you and I, what we are. What is most deplorable and wretched and offensive? What is evil? And the cross is that moment, friends, where where this all gets fleshed out. Where what started in the desert wilderness, a record of perfect obedience and approval, is then given to you on a cross in exchange for a record of horrific sin and evil. And Jesus takes it all. But specifically, and this is the best part, he takes responsibility for it all. So that... Evil might be defeated. And lasting peace 
for those who believe, who find themselves in him, can and will be a reality. Now, don't you at least want to follow someone like this? Someone who would take that on themselves. But that's not all. Jesus takes all of this in order to give you what is most beautiful and perfect and clean. His record, his obedience, himself. You have that. You have that. Now, where will that send you? If it's true. See, if it is true, if you are a Christian here today, you possess a love and a hope that demands to be seen and heard and felt in this world, even if at great cost to yourself. Does the Jesus that you follow, does it send you into hard places? Does it send you into darkness? Does it send you into suffering? Does it send you to be with people so that they might have and become what you are in Christ? Do you care about that? Jesus cares about this. That's why he's going. He does it first. Do we care to show the world, both in word and in deed, the love of Christ that we receive on a daily basis, that we see here in this text? Because if you're not a Christian here, and this is where I'll close, wouldn't it be nice in your darkest moments, right, in your suffering, to experience that kind of love, and that kind of hope and that grace and that mercy to have somebody come into your life and enter, that with, enter into that with you, wouldn't that be nice? In fact, I wonder, I wonder if it would compel you to follow what's behind that love and that hope. And yes, I'm passively, aggressively talking to the church to go be that for the world. A Jesus who comes to give his perfect life for yours, to make what is true for him true for you as well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for all that is in it. And there's a lot. There's a lot we didn't even get to. Um, would you help us to take what we have read and what we have heard, and would you be gracious and merciful to us to grow that in us, that we would see you in new light, that we would see your love for us in ways that maybe we haven't, that we would maybe confront certain thoughts about our culture and our worldviews of sin and Satan and evil that might cause us to see what you are doing here and ultimately doing on the cross for us in new light. We need you to be merciful to us in order to see that. Would you do that? For your glory we pray. Amen.